0: The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Walmart has ceased selling the Confederate flag and the Mississippi state flag, but it's under fire for selling stars and stripes underwear, or racist booty shorts, as the feminist website Jezebel describes them. I don't care about Walmart, which is basically the retail division of the Chinese Communist Party and can easily get its slave labour workshops behind the Wuhan Institute of Virology to shift production from the Star Spangled Banner to the Black Lives Matter flag in a matter of moments, but give it another six weeks and about the only place it will be safe to display America's national flag will be on your BVDs. As long, that is, as you don't get caught by the mob and they decide to debag you on the off chance you're wearing racist booty shorts. A Black Lives Matter protester had his testicle shot off by a copper's rubber bullet piercing his own uh, booty shorts. Fortunately, it was a white testicle. Otherwise, it would have been the shorts heard round the world. Don't wear your racist booty shorts to the riot because if a rubber bullet pierces your scrotum... And they take you to hospital, the doctors and nurses may refuse to treat you once they see a meat and two veg nestling in old glory. In Oregon's Lincoln County, named for the Spanish conquistador who discovered slavery, the county commissioner Claire Hall, uh, formerly known as Bill Hall, Uh, Ms Hall is mandating that all white people wear face masks when out and about. Non-white people do not have to wear face masks because a black man with a covered face risks playing into the discredited stereotype of masked black people as criminals. So uh, white people only now have to wear racial identifiers as part of their clothing. Good thing Churchill is the new Hitler and the old Hitler is forgotten, so no one starts thinking about where that organising principle came from. The grand store-wide clearing sale of our civilization continues. I am the god of hellfire, and I bring you fire. Last weekend of June 2020. It's the fifth anniversary of the Supreme Court's landmark ruling that the Founding Fathers had cannily provided for same sex marriage in the US Constitution. It's the 70th anniversary of American entry into the Korean War, uh, which officially is still going on. It's the 150th anniversary of Congress making Christmas Day a federal holiday. But none of that matters because it's also one month since the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, since when there has been no history. In that useful American formulation, it's history. As in, it's over, it's irrelevant, you need pay it no heed. History itself is now history. Brian, a Markstein club member from Minneapolis, reminds me of this bit of George Orwell from 1984. Every record has been destroyed or falsified, every book rewritten, every picture has been repainted, every statue and street building has been renamed, every date has been altered, and the The process is continuing day by day and minute by minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. And so it is this last month in America. The records are falsified. A 2016 vice presidential candidate declares on the Senate floor that slavery was invented in Virginia. The pictures are repainted. The mural in the lobby of McGill-Tulin Catholic High School in Mobile, Alabama, has been painted over to turn the Confederate flag into a less offensive flag. The books are being digitally burned. At Amazon... The Camp of the Saints is mysteriously out of print. That's to say the Kindle edition is out of print. How does that happen? The statues and buildings are renamed. The Emancipation Memorials paid for by the volunteer donations of freed slaves are now monuments to white supremacy. Disney's theme park ride, Splash Mountain, is to be rebranded because of its ties to the 1946 film Song of the South. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-done. And the Berkeley School District is to rename its Washington and Jefferson Elementary Schools because the father of our country is just the ultimate deadbeat dad. And every date is altered. The founding of America is not 1776, but 1619. Oh, and there are now demands to make this the national anthem. Imagine that. Imagine there's no nothing. It's easy if you try. That's written by John Lennon of the Beatles, who just a week ago were under fire for their racist song Penny Lane. But it's all a bit more nuanced now. In the Lennon and McCartney catalogue, the Paul McCartney songs are racist, but the John Lennon ones aren't. So let's make I Am the Walrus the national anthem, And yesterday came suddenly, will make an excellent epitaph for the Republic. The great Australian commentatrix Rita Panay, with whom I've had the pleasure of appearing on telly down under, says cancel culture is only possible because of coward culture. And that's true. Cancel culture only works because the other side knows that our side are the cowards who will cave, who will think, oh, I'm getting a bit of pushback on Twitter, I better fold. As Donald Rumsfeld said... In the frontispiece to America alone, in fact, weakness is a provocation. And right now, American Conservatives are weak. All this talk about, ha, 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 these are just Democrat cities run by Democrats. All we need to do is sit back and do nothing, and the great silent majority will get disgusted and turn out for us in November. Really? Really? You can't beat something with nothing... And right now, up against the usual big GOP nothing, the Black Lives Matter something is making huge advances. Things that were the fringiest of fringe positions just a month ago are now mainstream, like taking a knee and defunding the police and removing Abe Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt from the public square. And with a couple of exceptions, such as uh, Tom Cotton, couple of others. Republican heavyweights are either silent or incoherent or still sucking up to the mob. Something has changed this last month. It is estimated that five out of six Black Lives Matter protesters are white. That certainly conforms to my impression of the TV clips. A remarkable number of them seem to be young white women, somewhat upscale I would adjudge, albeit also uh, somewhat shrill, at least when it comes to shrieking at black cops in the street. This is something new in America. Violent protest by upscale whites against the entirety of their history. Rich Lowry of National Review is still writing his lame-ass columns arguing that Conservatives shouldn't be defending Confederate statues. Out on the streets, no distinction whatsoever is being made between Robert E. Lee and Ulysses S. Grant, between Jefferson Davis and Abraham Lincoln, between Jeb Stuart and Hans Christian Hegg. Or come to that, Stevie Ray Vaughan, the blues guitarist who died in a helicopter crash in 1990 and whose memorial in Austin, Texas, was defaced the other night because some rioters got him mixed up with... I don't know, Christopher Columbus, Winston Churchill, who cares? He's white, he's male, he's dead, that's enough. Rich misses two fundamental points. The practical one is that this is not a time to be negotiating with a mob. Hey, you can have this Confederate general, but lay off George Washington. Because they rightly discern that once you've accepted the principle of letting brute force determine which statues can stand, you won't muster the will to defend any of them. And in case Rich hasn't figured it out, these guys on the street hate Washington and Jefferson at least as much, if not more, than they hate some jubilation tea corn poem anti-Bellum mint julep swigging general nobody remembers anymore. Which brings me to the conservative philosophical point. These statues were erected decades after the Civil War, in part because they represented what was felt to be a necessary historical reconciliation, as those on both sides of the conflict well understood. That's nothing unusual. Uh, I'm an immigrant, and so the Confederacy means nothing at all to me. But I happened to be at Hillsborough Castle in Northern Ireland a few years ago, the day after Jerry Adams' And Martin McGuinness had been there uh, with the Queen. Do you think Her Majesty relished hosting two hardcore IRA thugs who had been up to their necks in the murder of her soldiers and of her policemen and even of her own family, uh, such as Lord Mountbatten? Of course not. But the killing stops and you make what accommodations you must to enable normal life to resume. In absolute moral terms, those accommodations might be squalid and unworthy, but not many societies at the time have the luxury of living on that pristine ground. Likewise, those Confederate statues reflect the accommodations of a particular period in American history, and a mature society has to be able to understand that it's Great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents had different concerns, often more basic concerns about war and peace, life and death, of not having your home burnt down, of being able to feed your family. A society that demands its past can form to the luxuriant preoccupations of the present, the moment, the hour, is demonstrating nothing more than a total failure of imaginative capacity. Public statuary is not about our moment, but theirs. The past is a foreign country, said L.P. Hartley. They do things differently there. And to demand they do the same as us, or they have to be torn down is an act of aggression that unbalances what all healthy societies are, which is a compact between the present, the past and the future. They do things differently there. Gentlemen wear hats. They don't care for gangster rap. The heroines in Jane Austen don't screw around and then do TV commercials for a great new internet site where you can get all forms of birth control instantly without anybody... Being any the wiser. A society that cannot even comprehend something as basic as that the past does things differently is no longer fully human. But just as an age that brags about its multiculturalism knows less about other cultures than ever before, so a cohort that bleats incessantly about empathy doesn't actually have any, and on the evidence of what's going on on our streets is incapable of having any. And there's nothing conservative about that, nothing for a conservative to pay lip service to or to uh, give fake respect to. American conservatives used to quote that line of Cicero's to the point where it began to irritate me. Uh, Cicero, to know nothing of what happened before you were born is to remain forever a child. You don't hear that so much now, presumably because, uh, because no one knows who this Cicero guy was. Well, Rich Lowry's is a child's conservatism. This is an onslaught against the entirety of history. As I described it to Tucker the other night, it's a civilizational regime change. I often use the line that when Democrats win, they're in power, when Republicans win, they're in office. Why is is that? Well, because you can't have conservative government in a left-wing culture. So conservatives give... Tons of money to drag useless Republicans across the finish line every other Tuesday, every other November, and wonder why nothing changes. While lefties control everything that matters, starting with the education system from kindergarten. Under Rich Lowry's day, late and several dollars short conservatism, a Marxist organisation, Black Lives Matter, has more formal influence in American schools and on the American curriculum than conservatives do. If you think conservatism is already irrelevant to what's happening across the land, then try figuring out the attention it's going to get once Rich Lowry has persuaded the mob to agree to only emptying half the plinths. But then I'm beginning to wonder just how many actual Conservatives there are in Conservative Inc. I see that uh, 2016 GOP candidate Carly Fiorina says this time round she'll be supporting uh, the serial hair sniffer Joe Biden. I sat next to Ms Fiorina at a dinner in Nashua, New Hampshire just a few years ago, and heard her give a barnstormer of a speech uh, in a fabulous red cocktail dress, as I recall. Um, But a terrific speech, the dress notwithstanding. If she meant any passage of that speech, she could not in conscience vote for Biden. And yet she is. The silent majority? Do you really buy that? Almost every single corporation cowers before Marxist propaganda. Police chiefs and soldiers kneel before looters and rioters. And those who aren't into kneeling just walk away and leave the force. The president tweets about law and order. Republican legislators tweet about new pressure on Syria or tougher sanctions on Iran. The Department of Justice, even as America burns, is focused on extraditing Julian Assange from London. The conservative think tanks, almost all now flush with infusions of Google and Facebook cash, do nothing as rampaging vandals trash our civilization. Escape the quarantine by delving into fantastic fiction chosen and read by Mark Stein himself in Stein's Tales for Our Time. Thrillers, mysteries, science fiction, romance, tales that transcend genre, everything from classics to titles hidden in the upper shelves. Mark Stein Club members can listen to the full catalogue of nearly three dozen Tales for Our Time. Hear them all by going to www.steinonline.com tfot. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. The memorial to Francis Scott Key stood in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park for 130 years until just the other day when the statue was toppled and the words slave owner and kill whitey were sprayed on the base. Who was Francis Scott Key? Well, he wrote the words to America's national anthem, an anthem that, at the behest of the bazillionaire owners of the nation's most lucrative sports franchises, is now the most degraded and insulted anthem on the planet. But who cares? A new poll shows that 80% of American liberals want a whole new anthem. That's what it's going to take to get them back on their feet. So as he's en route to the garbage can of history, I thought I'd find another Francis Scott Key poem before his collected works are all torched. Uh, That's what he was, by the way, an amateur poet. Uh, The tune to the Star Spangled Banner is the old anthem of a London dining and drinking club, the Anacreontic Society, which was going gangbusters... In, uh, in the 18th century, until they made the mistake of inviting the Duchess of Devonshire along one night. And after that, it all fell apart. Anyway, they had a splendid drinking song with a stirring melody by John Stafford Smith, whose uh, dad was the organist at Gloucester Cathedral. And the tune survived the society. And so it became known to Francis Scott Key and it popped into his head when he was held by the Royal Navy listening to British troops bombard Fort McHenry through the night during the War of 1812. And so he had the Anacreontic song in mind when he wrote The Star-Spangled Banner. But I sometimes wonder if that was the only tune he knew, because a decade earlier he wrote another poem about America at war, uh, his first poem on the subject... And that poem can also be sung to that London drinking song. When the warrior returns from the battle afar To the home and the country nobly defended uh, Don't worry, I'm not going to sing the thing because it's the poem that interests me, not him setting it to the same old, same old London drinking tune again. Uh, This poem is not about the War of 1812, but about the Barbary Wars, so we're off the shores of Tripoli, uh, not Fort McHenry, and so the bad guys aren't the British, but the Muslims. So if you think the Star-Spangled Banner is hate speech, imagine if this poem had caught on and become the national anthem. And it gets worse. Because the Yanks aren't just kicking his lamo butt, but Francis Scott Key refers to his countrymen not as Americans, but as Colombians, which was quite common at that time. So we've got a little bit of Christopher Columbus triumphalism in there too. And what's interesting is that in the third verse, Mr. Key lands apparently by accident on the flag imagery that he made so central in the Fort McHenry poem. And he even calls it star-spangled, a star-spangled flag, not a banner. And he emphasises the brightness of the stars, but only to contrast it with the faint pale beams of the Islamic crescent. And to note that the turbaned heads... Bow to the terrible glare of those bright stars. As I said, imagine if we were singing that Francis Scott Key poem today. So maybe those goons will go back and spray Islamophobe on the base of his statue next to the Kill Whitey graffiti. Written in 1805 by Francis Scott Key. And in a certain sense, a first draft. When the warrior returns... When the warrior returns from the battle afar To the home and the country he nobly defended, O oh, warm be the welcome to gladden his ear, And loud be the joy that his perils are ended. In the full tide of song let his fame roll along, To the feast-flowing board let us gratefully throng, Where, mixed with the olive, the laurel shall wave, And form a bright wreath for the brows of the brave. Colombians, a band of your brothers behold, "'who claim the reward of your heart's warm emotion. "'When your cause, when your honour, "'urged onward the bold, "'in vain frowned the desert, "'in vain raged the ocean. "'To a far distant shore, "'to the battle's wild roar, "'they rushed your fair fame "'and your rights to secure. "'Then mixed with the olive, "'the laurels shall wave.' and form a bright wreath for the brows of the brave. In the conflict resistless each toil they endured, till their foes fled dismayed from the war's desolation, and pale beamed the crescent, its splendour obscured by the light of the star-spangled flag of our nation, where each radiant star gleamed a meteor of war, and the turbaned heads bowed to its terrible glare, now mixed with the olive, the laurel shall wave and form a bright wreath for the brows of the brave. Our fathers who stand on the summit of fame shall exultingly hear of their sons the proud story, how their young bosoms glowed with the patriot flame, how they fought, how they fell in the blaze of their glory. How triumphant they rode o'er the wandering flood and stained the blue waters with infidel blood. How mixed with the olive the laurel did wave and formed a bright wreath for the brows of the brave. Then welcome the warrior returned from afar to the home and the country he nobly defended. Let the thanks due to valour now gladden his ear and loud be the joy that his perils are ended. In the full tide of song, let his fame roll along. To the feast-flowing board, let us gratefully throng. Where, mixed with the olive, the laurel shall wave and form a bright wreath for the brows of the brave. A poem from me to you before it joins the rest of American history in the trash. A song by Francis Scott Key, When the Warrior Returns, and concluding stirringly, not with the home of the brave, but the brows of the brave. You need writers who love their country wholeheartedly and straightforwardly, and can put it on paper without embarrassment. And when you don't have them, or you do, but you drag them off the pedestals and trash their work, you're left with a nation that has a great big hole in its soul. Mark's mailbox is on the air. Victor Swenson, a New Jersey member of the Mark Stein Club, writes, OK, Mark, what can I do as I watch my country burn? Well, I should say that, and it Pains me as an effete man of words to have come to this sorry conclusion. Uh, But I should say that given the way the political class is divided between a party that eggs on the mob and a party cowed into shameful silence by it, I should say that we are at the point where physical resistance actually has to be mounted. I was very moved by those scenes of whoever they were. I think there were old-time footy hooligans defending the Churchill statue in London and... uh, veterans, uh, old soldiers of the Queen defending the cenotaph and aged Boy Scouts and girl guides uh, defending the statue of Lord Baden-Powell, uh, the, the founder of uh, scouting. And I would like to see something similar in the United States. What's, what's, the, what's the very handy phrase that Americans have? A well-regulated militia. Well, with police departments standing aside and the National Guard denied hotel accommodations by wily mayors, uh, the time would seem right for a well-regulated militia. So if you get a heads-up that the mob are coming for the statues in your town, think about doing what those elderly English scoutmasters did and defending that statue. Because once it's come down, no city council, whether composed of social justice lefties or faint-hearted pseudo-conservatives, is going to be putting it back up. But if you're not in a town where there's mobs on the streets. Your options are less physically endangering, but rather more time-consuming and indeed rather more confrontational. If you're in a classic burg-like little old quaint old Windsor, Vermont, where the school mum's been booted out by the school board for being insufficiently pro-Black Lives Matter. You've got to go to that school board meeting and demand she be reinstated now. And if she's not reinstated, you've got to find someone among you and your mates to run against that school board chairman, chairwoman, chairperson. I've done tours of duty in school board politics and nobody likes it. But if you walk away and abandon it to hardcore leftist social engineers for two generations, Why be surprised that the pampered beneficiaries of the most comfortable and advanced society in human history are out on the streets tearing down Washington and Jefferson? Why be surprised that uh, the United States Constitution has no purchase on them? Culture trumps politics. And American conservatives are losing their country because they think politics is about some you <laughs> transient seat warmer like Paul Ryan uh, and that somehow he's more important than the schools and the churches and the businesses and the movies and all the rest so when you see that your school board is going to screw over some teacher or take down the Columbus statue or change the name of the grade school because it was named after Thomas Jefferson, go to the meeting and get in their face about it the silent majority was silent because back in Nixon's day it had no voice other than uh, trying to get a letter published in the newspaper. Now every citizen can get on Facebook or Twitter or something and push back. You have to push back. Uh, why is my old chum Heather Eastman at Indigo Books in Canada caving to the trans on the anti-JK Rowling stuff? Because the trans are all she hears from uh, on stuff like this. She's not even aware there's another side. These guys are the enemies of civilization. They're actually showing it now, every night. Statue after statue after statue. The enemies of civilization. And you have to engage the enemy wherever you find them take your business elsewhere and let the uh, Black Lives Matter suck-ups in the boardrooms know why you're doing it. If you've got a co-worker or a neighbour threatened with the loss of a job, speak up for him. Cancel culture only works because, as Rita Panayi says, every coward goes along with it. As I said 15 years ago, the Proper response to the Mohammed cartoons was for all of us to publish them and share the risk and say, "Okay, then you're going to have to kill us all. Likewise, with these Black Lives Matter goons, uh, they're going to have to cancel us all. And they need to know that. You know, we lost in Afghanistan and Iraq because we thought we had the best militaries and that was enough. And as should be well understood by anyone who goes to war. You win wars by using all elements of national power, uh, diplomatic, uh, uh, cultural, ideological, the full spectrum. And the narrow thinking overseas is now being uh, matched by the same kind of narrow thinking at all. The politics that matters the politics that matters takes place where people live. The sports teams they follow, the restaurants they patronise, all that's more important to them than Paul Ryan. And the right has to be competing in that space. So the wanker right's theory that all we've got to do is sit back and let these clowns run amok and their defects will be so obvious. People will come running to us and November will be a landslide. They've assured us of that for decades as they lost the schools and they lost the pop culture and they lost everything else even now unto the statue on the village green. Speak up, speak out to the school board, to your co-workers, to your neighbours, because you can't have a culture war if one side doesn't even show up. Mark Stein's Last Call. This coming Tuesday, June 30th, the Supreme Court of Russia was scheduled to hear a most interesting case. For the first time ever, a private citizen was bringing a case against Vladimir Putin for wrongful dismissal. Unfortunately, the hearing is now off because the citizen in question is dead of COVID-19. Mikhail Ignatiev was the head of the Chuvash Republic. That's not my old friend Michael Ignatiev, who was leader of the Canadian Liberal Party for about a fortnight during a uh, short sabbatical from Harvard. This is an entirely different Mikhail Ignatiev. And uh, Chuvash for any non chuvash among our audience, is due east of Moscow, about uh, 500 miles on the Volga River. There are Turkic people. And for the last decade, their strongman has been this Ignatiev guy who's been a big Putin loyalist. Here he is, for example, this January, marking National Press Day by calling for the wiping out of journalists who criticize the government. Quote, we need to state clearly, we need to wipe them out. Mikhail Ignatiev got away with that, but then he went to review some new emergency equipment for the fire and rescue teams. And presenting the guys with some brand new fire engines, he made a shorter fireman jump for the keys to the engine as he dangled them above his head. Последний на этой неделе обсуждала вся страна. Чиновник заставил сотрудника МЧС прыгать за ключами от новенькой пожарной машины. В регионе назвали эпизод дружеской шуткой. Но вот глава ведомства Евгений Зинченко щел по ведении Натальи. Jump, jump for them. That's Ignatiev making the short guy jump for the fire engine keys again and again. Pretty funny, right? Well, Putin didn't think so. A week later, he removed Ignatiev as head of the Chuvash Republic. The deposed leader did not take it well. On May the 20th, he announced he was suing Putin for wrongful dismissal. On May the 27th, he was hospitalised with Covid-19. Next week's gripping courtroom drama is now cancelled. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 58, the man who made the farm and jump, Mikhail Ignatiev. Bernardino Pinheiro was ordained a priest in 1947. Eleven years later, Pope Pius XII made him a bishop in Talca, in Chile. He attended the Second Vatican Conference in Rome in the early 60s, was head of the Episcopal Conference of Chile by the early 80s, and Archbishop of La Serena. He was a beloved figure in Chile until last August, when the Vatican announced that at the age of 103, Archbishop Piñera was being investigated for an allegation of sexual abuse against a child over 50 years earlier. His nephew is the current president of Chile and decided he'd like to attend his uncle's funeral. Accompanied by close family members, Chile's president, Sebastián Piñera, took part in the final farewell of his 104-year-old uncle, former Archbishop Bernardino Piñera. Health Ministry Protocol stipulates that only five people can attend the funeral of anyone suspected of having died of COVID-19. 20 in the case of a person who has died of other causes. The official explanation is that, oh, yeah, Uncle Bernardino did get the COVID a month or so back, but it cleared up and he died of something else entirely. So as a non-COVID fatality, he's entitled to 20 mourners at his funeral, not just five. Uh, But in any case, there were more than 20 guys there. And then the death certificate did say he had died of the COVID. The problem is, more than 30 people attended the funeral, when 20 is the maximum under the new pandemic protocol. The ceremony included live music and photographers. The president demanded the sealed casket be opened, giving him one last chance to see his uncle. The deputy health minister defended the president against widespread charges of bad taste and of breaking his own rules. There were only 18 family members at the funeral. The casket was sealed as stipulated. But as is the way somebody had their cell phone filming the president opening the casket, presumably prior to getting a selfie with the corpse. He was the oldest living Catholic bishop on the planet, dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 104, Bernardino Piñera. Hi, I'm Dan Foster. That's right, the Nigerian African American that just came back to Africa for the last, what, nine years? I'm here. And ladies and gentlemen, it is about that time. Yes, the Dan Foster Show is now in existence. Can I get a hallelujah? Hallelujah! Thank you very much. Let the choir relax. <laughs> but seriously, coming up today, the show is very serious, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to be talking with some serious guests. Got some really funny guys, too. Comedians like Mouth will be talking to him, 101. So he's going to be taking the mic. He's got some stand-up stuff he's going to do. He's got three minutes to crack your ribs. Dan Foster was born in Washington, D.C., but in his early 40s, after a couple of decades going nowhere very much in American radio, he moved to Nigeria and became a huge star there. He took over Cool FM's Good Morning Nigeria show and made it a smash. He was also a familiar television fixture on West African Idol and Nigeria's Got Talent. Welcome to the biggest talent show on Earth. Nigeria's Got Talent auditioned in eight cities across Nigeria, where thousands of hopeful contestants came to show us just why they must be on TV. You will be the judge of that, because only one act will walk away with an incredible cap price of $10 naira. Contestants get only one chance to strut their stuff in front of the audition judges. The judges can hit their buzzers at any time to stop the action. Let's meet our judges. Kate Henshaw, Yibor Coco, Dan Foster. The talent on Nigeria's Got Talent didn't always strike him as that talented. Say, who are you? I say, I'm a comedian. He say, where do you come in? I say, I make people laugh. Say, make me laugh. I crack the first joke, the man ugly laugh. Here he is, wearying of a flailing comedian's over-leisurely crawl toward the (laughs) punchline and keeling over and falling off the judge's podium. You see what you have done? Yeah, kill one of the judges. Dan Foster loved Nigeria and picked up a lot of the local vernacular, which I'm not sure I've ever managed to do in my adopted country. But he kept in touch with the land of his birth, too. Also, we're going to be talking with a friend of mine that came all the way from Washington, D.C. Don't laugh. His name is President Barack Obama who knows me and my family, and he is here today in our studios today. He said, Dan Foster, in Africa, you're doing great things for our country. So he wants to hook up with us, and he told me I've got at least five minutes. The security people are here. Nigeria's got talent, but some of it has to be imported. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 61, the day after getting his test results. Nigeria's favourite American, Dan Foster. We've been pretty punctilious in our COVID necrology in only including deaths from COVID, but there are what one might call COVID related deaths, by which I don't mean underlying conditions. Uh, Steve Bing was a wannabe screenwriter. He wrote uh, Kangaroo Jack, if you recall such a thing. Uh, But as a wannabe screenwriter, his writing was mostly appreciated by Hollywood when it was on a large check with at least six zeros on the end. He inherited 600 million bucks from his grandfather when he was a teenager, and he used it to fund films like the animated feature Polar Express and to fund Democrat politicians like the ubiquitous Clintons. To the public... He was best known as the sometimes squeeze of Miss Elizabeth Hurley. On Tuesday morning, Hurley, who shares 18-year-old son Damien with Bing, took to social media to share a few snaps with her ex. She captioned the post, quote, I'm saddened beyond belief that Steve is no longer with us. Our time together was very happy, and although there were some tough times, the memories of a sweet, kind man are what matter. He threw himself out of the window of his 27th-floor apartment in Century City because he was severely depressed by the, quote, lack of human contact during quarantine. That's terribly sad. Wealthy beyond the dreams of almost anyone, friend of movie stars and presidents, but dead from the lockdown blues at the age of 55, Steve Bing. Uh, As our society succumbs to mass moronization, I'll be here launching a highly pertinent tale for our time tomorrow, Saturday evening, North American Eastern, more or less around midnight Greenwich Mean Time, if you want to work it out from there. Hope you'll join me for that. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. Rights reserved.